Welcome everyone to episode two of the Fellows of Phoenix podcast, a part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am your host, Gerald Borgay, um, coming to you before Wednesday night's slate of games. Um, the Suns are set to take on the Raptors, who have been uncharacteristically struggling so far this season, and uh, it's a good opportunity to build on the Suns' impressive 5-2 and two start, but they're also facing a team that was very good last year and is potentially dangerous being backed into this rough start to their season, so it'll be interesting to see how that game unfolds. Um, obviously this will be hitting the airwaves after that game, but so far Suns are five and two. Um, they just lost their last game against the Clippers in a really up and down affair, um, fell behind by as many as 31 points and then very, you know, encouragingly battled back. Um, we've seen so many blowouts so far at the start of the season, the way that they bounced back and battled back in that game was Pretty impressive, especially for a team that's still trying to build that chemistry offensively, still incorporating some new pieces and doing so in a shortened offseason and training camp. So that was nice to see. But, um, you know, our first episode was overwhelmingly positive. So today we're going to take a look at a couple of things that the Suns should keep an eye on as far as areas of improvement. And oddly enough, some of them actually revolve around uh, Devin Booker who is the team's best player and, you know, has not been playing bad by any stretch of the imagination, but these are more areas where the Suns should improve as the year goes on and things that could actually make them even better than, you know, this five and two team that started off on such a promising note. So for starters, we should probably just point out that the Suns, you know, by and large, by public opinion, their two best players, Devin Booker and Chris Paul, are still kind of finding their groove together. Um, you know, Devin Booker is averaging 21.1 points and 4.4 assists per game. He's shooting just under 50% from the field, um, but his numbers are obviously down a little bit so far from where they were last year when he was putting up 26.6 points and 6.5 assists per game, shooting just under 49% from the field and a really impressive 91.9% from the free throw line. Um, you know, his numbers were expected to kind of go down a little bit or at least stay the same just because when you're playing with someone who is also a magician with the ball in their hands like Chris Paul, you know, the Suns aren't going to need him to do as much. That was the whole point of rounding out this roster with improved depth like Chris Paul, Jay Crowder, um, just improving the rotation from one through, you know, 12 pretty much. Um, so his numbers were never going to stay that high. But, you know, Chris Paul hasn't been doing a whole lot as far as, you know, putting up the types of numbers that we've seen from him in recent seasons either. Uh, so far, he's at 13.4 points and 8.3 assists per game. The assist is encouraging. That's a lot of assists. And it's not too far off from what Ricky Rubio was putting up last year. Uh, but he's only shooting, you know, under 42% from the field, 33% from three. So he hasn't been his normal kind of dominant self-efficient self either yet. Uh, he's missed a lot of looks in the mid-range too. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but, you know, he's still getting his shot whenever he wants it in that mid-range. But there have been quite a few times where he just hasn't connected on those attempts, which is uncharacteristic for a guy that usually shoots a pretty elite percentage from that area of the floor. 
So, you know, these are things that as they grow more comfortable in these, in these first few games, we've kind of seen that feeling out process where guys are not afraid to step on each other's toes, but a little more complacent kind of learning the ebbs and flows of their teammates, their tendencies. When is the time for them to take over? When is the time to pass and let somebody else take over? And we're kind of seeing that with Booker and Paul a little bit. The good news is they're still doing a lot of other great stuff. They're making winning plays down the stretch. You know, I don't have to remind you about the really impressive step back, you know, running floater that Chris Paul had against Nikola Jokic um, to win that game in Denver. You know, Devin Booker is hitting that step back three against uh, Royce O'Neal right in his grill to kind of wrap up that Utah Jazz game. Those are the types of plays that we're used to seeing them make. And we're going to see more of that, especially as they grow more comfortable with knowing when the other one is on, knowing the other one's tendencies, stuff like that. Um, and the good news is they were both good at this last year, too. You know, both of those guys ranked near the top 10 in, in total clutch points scored last year. Um, clutch scenarios, NBA.com, defined by, you know, when the clock is down to five minutes or less and the score is within five points. Um, those are considered clutch situations cp3 led the league in scoring in those situations and total points scored and devin booker was 11th in the league so those are two borderline top 10 clutch scorers that you have on the same roster now it's going to take some time for them to you know learn feel each other out a little bit better but um the early returns are promising with some of those plays that we were talking about and it's only going to get better as we go along Chris Paul already has 15 clutch points this year, which is tied for ninth in the league. Devin Booker's tied for 22nd with 11. Um, he hasn't shot the ball well, only four for 14 in those situations. But, um, you know, a lot of that was down to like that one Denver game when he didn't play very well. And Chris Paul, you know, made up for it, made the big shot that the Suns really needed down the stretch. Um, speaking of Booker, we should probably talk about the turnovers, which is easily the, the biggest drawback in his game right now. And, you know, you could argue either that or defense last year as well, but this year the turnovers have really increased and the defense has really improved. So it's not even close anymore. Um, you know, he leads the league in both turnovers per game and total turnovers through this point. And, uh, you know, as always with a lot of these stats, since we're so early in the season, small sample size alert, but he's committing 5.3 turnovers per game so far. And he has 37 total through seven games to only 31 assists. So he has six more turnovers than assists at this point, which is, um, you know, a little uncharacteristic, a step in kind of the wrong direction compared to last year where his playmaking was the best that it's ever been. And, you know, a couple of people have noticed this on Twitter that, it just seems like he's making the right reads a lot of the time and he's seeing teammates that are open. He's just the, the like the trajectory of his passes is just a little bit off. Um, I think Kellen Olson tweeted something about it looked like he's playing with a broken joystick and that's pretty much exactly it. Um, some of those passes are just not going where they're supposed to go. Some of that could be a little bit of, you know, just rust shortened off season, some of that is learning new teammates' tendencies. Some of that is just kind of being in a hurry. A couple of times he's making these drives at full speed and then zipping these passes out, and he's putting a lot of you know oomph on the ball. So some of those are not always going to be on target, but I think those are things that you can tighten up and things that he'll improve as the season goes on. We've seen him make 
you know, off target passes before, but Booker for the most part is a very gifted and underrated passer in that regard. So I think these are things that will improve. And the good news for the Suns is that despite Booker committing over five turnovers per game, they're only they're still sixth in the league in fewest turnovers. They're only committing 13.9 per game. So Booker's committing by himself over a third of those. So if he can chop those down to two or three, um, I think you can live with that because the Suns, by and large, are taking care of the ball so far. Uh, we'll see if those trends still hold up. But you know, if, if that's something that Booker can cut down on as we go further and as he builds that chemistry and you know the the handle and the passing becomes a little bit tighter as we get deeper into the season the suns are going to be a team that takes care of the ball pretty well you know chris paul is famous for doing that so those are encouraging signs despite uh, the rough start that booker's had with the turnovers another thing that is related to not just booker but also deandre ayton is uh, the free throw percentage which is kind of weird because Booker shot almost 92% last year. It was kind of the expectation that every time he went to the line, it was going in. And now we're kind of at the point where, you know, he's missed nine of his 34 free throws. He's shooting 73.5% through the first seven games. Um, So he's already missed nine free throws. He only missed 41 free throws total last year for the whole season. Um, I guess it was a shortened season. So maybe he would have missed a little bit more, but Still, it's uh, it's weird to see him missing so many free throws early on in the season. Uh, that's something I expect to also improve as we go along. Ayton has shot 15 for 21, so not bad. He's at 71.4%. Uh, it's a little bit down from the 75% he shot last year. But again, the good news is the Suns' depth and the rest of the Suns are making up for that so far. Uh, They are currently second in free throw percentage at 82.2%, which is not that far off from last year's record setting 83.4% that the team shot. So once again, this is a very efficient free throw shooting team. And, you know, once the team's most efficient free throw shooter starts shooting like it, those numbers should stay, you know, relatively level maybe they don't stay at 82 percent the whole season there's not maybe there's not another record setting season in store but um that is an encouraging sign that you know booker has not shot the ball well from the foul line and they're still shooting that well as a team kind of like the turnovers thing very promising and, and a testament to the job that james jones has done supplying this group with depth uh this is one that this last potential or a second to last potential shortcoming of this team this is one that i don't know if it's going to improve that much it could if they really focus on it but it might not be a point of emphasis just because they might not have the personnel for this and that is the low number of free throw attempts that the suns are taking as a team Um, so far they are dead last in free throw attempts in the entire league 18.4 per game last year they were taking 23.8 per game which was 10th in the league so You can see from that by only increasing by like five free throws a game, they could really improve their stock in this category. But the problem is they lost two guys who were getting to the line regularly. Um, You know, they lost Kelly Oubre, who was getting there 4.4 times per game, and Ricky Rubio, who was at 3.5. So Chris Chris Paul is at 3.1, which is only slightly down from Rubio. But the problem is they lost Oubre, and Devin Booker's free throw attempts per game have dropped all the way from 7.3 to 4.9 a night. 
So a lot of numbers that I'm throwing at you right now, but the point is they're losing a lot of free throw shooting and, and Booker's normal penchant for getting to the line hasn't shown up to this point. Um, and, you know, part of that is just the feeling out process. Like we've seen a lot of nights where Booker is not having to take a lot of the same shots or challenge defenses the same way that he has in the past because he has so much help around him. He has so many guys that are capable of making plays. So it's only natural that some of those numbers are going to come down. Um, but it is something that might hold up for the rest of the season, a, a worrisome trend as far as the Suns not getting to the free throw line that often. It's not a big deal if they remain efficient. And, and this is kind of related to what Monty was saying the other day about how the Suns pace is second to last in the league, but it's not as big a concern for him as long as the offense is efficient. Kind of similar with free throw shooting, but free throw shooting helps your offense be more efficient. Like it, it's an easy way to get freebies. So if they don't have guys that are attacking the rim like that, if they don't have, you know, kind of an uptick in fouls drawn by by guys like Booker and especially DeAndre Ayton, who is he's at 3.0 free throw attempts per game right now. So not bad. It's it's a career high for him, for him but it needs to be a lot higher for a seven footer who is primarily operating around the basket. So these are things that it's going to take a collective effort to improve. Booker will definitely help in that regard once he grows more comfortable with attacking and, and opponents learn that, you know, they can't just focus all their attention on Booker anymore because the Suns have guys capable of making them pay. Um, but for the time being, it is something to keep an eye on as far as how uh, infrequently they're getting to the foul line right now. And then the last thing we kind of touched on this uh, in episode one is that opponent three-point percentage is going to improve. We saw that on Sunday against the Clippers. Uh, Paul George alone shot seven for 10 from three. The Clippers shot 17 for 29, which was 58%. Um, and that alone, the Suns had been holding opponents to 30% shooting from three, but that game bumped it all the way up to 34.2. That's still the fifth best mark in the league right now. Um, and the good news is they're holding opponents to the second fewest attempts, which goes a long way in helping limit that. But, you know, we, we talked about this. In this case, it's progression to the mean. Um, you know, opponents are not going to shoot that poorly against the Suns. There will be hot shooting nights like we saw with the Clippers game. Uh, the key is to just kind of maintaining that and making sure they can overcome it on those nights, which in Sunday's case was a bit of a, an uphill climb. Um, now that we've covered that, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Cam Johnson because he has been pretty great to start this season and kind of flying under the radar as someone that's coming off the bench. There's been so much good to talk about with the Suns lately. Um, it's only natural someone kind of fell off the radar. Mikael Bridges has been the star of the show so far, but we shouldn't lose sight of what Cam Johnson is doing either because you know he's averaging 12.7 points in just 22.4 minutes per game off the bench and that's up from you know just under nine points per game in 22 minutes last year so he's barely playing more than he did last season as a rookie um but he's putting up 20.5 points per 36 minutes which is third on the team behind only Dario Saric and Devin Booker right now um you know he's shooting like 49 percent from the field 39 percent from three on six attempts per game um, both of those numbers are improvements on last season you know, he was shooting just under 44% from the field. He was only taking 4.8 threes per game. So he's doing a lot more in basically the same amount of minutes that 
he got. Um, you know, he's a plus 10.0 in plus minus, which is second best on the team to only Sharich, who, you know, has technically only played three games, which, um, you know, is a good sign that he's coming in off the bench and having a major impact in his minutes. He's, he's been a lot like a super sub. And, you know, I personally have advocated for starting Jay Crowder to start the season. And then as time goes along, starting Cam Johnson, because it's only a matter of time before he flashes that, you know, that potential, that brilliance, that, that floor spacing component that we saw in the bubble. Um, so I figured it was only a matter of time before he kind of works his way into the starting rotation. But at this rate, it looks like he's probably a better fit for the bench just because, you know, Jay Crowder doesn't need a ton of shots. He brings a lot of strength to that four spot as far as the defensive end is concerned. And if Cam Johnson keeps doing this off the bench, being this supercharged microwave scorer, then you know what? He's in the right role. Like this is how you maximize his role for this season. Um, and maybe you can revisit it next season, but the Suns are a plus 70 in the, in his 157 minutes on the floor. And and what he's doing feels very similar to the bubble. You know, he put up 13 points per game, 50% shooting was taking five threes per game. Um, and the Suns were a plus 86 when he was on the floor in the bubble the only difference is that he's doing it in much fewer minutes because in Orlando he was averaging 32 minutes per game. Now he's down exactly 10 minutes per game and he's still putting up pretty similar numbers to that. So it's been really impressive what Cam Johnson has done. And that's to say nothing of his defense, which extends across multiple positions and is far more NBA ready and, and just kind of stout than I think a lot of people were expecting. That's the thing with both Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges is that they're just going to keep getting better. And um, according to Jay Crowder, based on what he said at shoot around on Wednesday, they have the right mindset about it. Rest on how, how, how eager they are to just work and how eager they are to learn, learn new stuff, learn more stuff. Um, they always ask questions. I feel like that, they get that part of it. They get that it's more to learn in this league. It's more to learn throughout our game. And um, it's no coincidence that they, they're having a good start because they do put the work in. Once you put the work in, obviously, at some point, it's going to pay off. And right now, it's paying off for them, and that's good for our team. Um, these guys are eager to learn, eager to be good, eager to have a name in this league. So um, it's been good for our team. It's been good for them uh, individually. So we're excited for that, and hopefully they keep it going. So – Really like what I've seen from Cam Johnson so far. As much as he and Mikael Bridges are the future on the wings, like the long-term future beyond Jay Crowder and this three-year contract that he's on, um, you know, he looks like he would be ready to start. And that's the great thing about him doing what he's doing in such limited minutes off the bench is he's going to continue doing that. And that's very promising for the day when he kind of surpasses Crowder in the rotation. I don't know if it'll come this season, because like I said, I feel like his fit with this bench group is really important for Phoenix. But, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's a good problem to have for sure. Uh, to wrap up today, I need to talk about a movie that I watched recently because, holy shit, it was so bad. Like, I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a big budget movie as laughably and entertaining tainingly bad as Wonder Woman 1984. And, you know, this came out probably two weeks ago now. I think it came out on Christmas. But I I would just, 
I don't know how you go from Wonder Woman, which is one of the few good DC movies that is out there. You know, aside from Nolan's trilogy, it's very hard to find DC movies that are good. And Wonder Woman was one of them. And I don't understand how they went from that to one of the worst DC movies or just movies period that I've ever seen. Um, I knew that it was going to be terrible from the mall scene. That's like five or 10 minutes in alone. Like the first scene isn't that bad. Like, you know, young Diana competing with all these Amazon warriors, like that wasn't bad. And then it just flashes forward to this mall scene and I almost turned it off then and there because it was just shot so weird and I, I hate to harp on like something like extras, like the acting quality of the extras, but like the mall robbers, they like hold this little girl hostage. And I swear one of them, I paused the movie and had to make sure that it wasn't Beck Bennett from SNL, like just a bad SNL character, like yelling, like, I'm never going back. You can't make me like it was awful. <laughs> and I couldn't tell like what they were even robbing really. And then like a gun came into the picture and suddenly there's this girl hostage who's dangling over the ledge in a mall. And it was just so, and the action was weird. Like it was, unclear what was happening it was just really bad and then somehow the plot got worse from there so the movie if you haven't seen it it revolves around this dreamstone that basically grants you a wish at the cost of something that's important to you and the main bad guy is maxwell lord who is played by pedro pascal and is somehow one of the best things about this ridiculous movie um And I've always loved Marvel and DC superheroes. Like I've always played the video games was of course into the movies as soon as they started coming out, but I never really read the comics growing up. So I made sure to do my research on this and make sure I wasn't bashing some established comic book storyline. But from what I could tell, this movie was not based on any specific comic book story from wonder woman. Like there were certain components that were taken out of it, but it's weird because it as much as people thought that these movie these types of movies wouldn't be successful because the comic book stories were just way too far out there the ones that tend to do the best are ones that are based on like established stories um this one was just out of the blue and so it's sort of in the comics so basically in the comics Maxwell Lord, this villain, has the ability to influence minds, even superheroes. And he feared the power of the Justice League, so he used this computer system created by Batman, which was called Brother Eye, to tap into every computer in the world. Um, And it's sort of like what happens at the end of the movie where he's broadcasting to the entire world. Um, So in the comics, he takes control of Superman's mind. He tries to get him to kill Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman gets him, you know, wrapped up in the lasso of truth to figure out if there's any way to break that influence he has over Superman. And then Lord basically reveals the only way is to kill him. And Wonder Woman is forced to make, you know, the tough, unheroic choice to kill him. But the murder is broadcast to the entire world with Brother Eye. So her reputation is ruined. Brother Eye launches this devastating attack on her home world of um, Themyscira, Themyscira, however you pronounce that. And they use a bunch of nanobots. And I'm sitting here reading this plot line. I'm like, holy shit, like that would have been cool. <laughs> like that would have been something worth watching on the big screen. But what they do instead is they have this dreamstone, which is basically 
I think in the comics it's like a chaos crystal or something. But it, this dreamstone in the movie basically gives you a free wish at the cost of something important to you. And Pedro Pascal's character uses it to become the dreamstone. So the cost is his own health is like deteriorating throughout the entire movie. But he's basically this self-decaying genie that's like convincing other people to wish for things that will benefit him. Like he he gets in the backseat of his of this driver. And he's like, man, don't you wish there was no traffic and they would just part, you know, the cars would part like the Red Sea. And the guy's like, yeah, I wish for that. And then that's how it works. Like they start driving and the cars are parting. Like it's just stupid stuff like that. <laughs> that is just bizarre. Um, so meanwhile, Wonder Woman has come into contact with this Dreamstone before the bad guy gets a hold of it. And she makes her wish for her boyfriend, Steve, from the first movie, uh, Chris Pine, to come back because apparently the dating game in the 80s is just as bad as it is now, which I don't believe it. I don't think Diana had to, like, you know, suffer through making her own Tinder profile or whatever. But, you know, I digress. So her ex-boyfriend, who's been dead for decades, comes back in another man's body, basically taking over some random guy's life. And Diana can see him for who he is for some reason. You know, he's in this other guy's body, but she sees him as Chris Pine, which is basically just how we justify having Chris Pine in the sequel. And then also, meanwhile, Barbara, who is played by Kristen Wiig, is this nerdy archaeologist who comes to the museum she works at, and she's got no friends. Wonder Woman's nice to her, but she she winds up using the Dreamstone and, and wishing that she could be more like Diana, her new friend, and that's how she gets superpowers in the process. Um, so basically, Maxwell, who knows about the stone, seduces Barbara. He gets the stone. He becomes the stone. He leaves to Cairo to go confront some other guy who's also in the oil business. So we get to the point where Wonder Woman is flying through fireworks in the air in a stolen invisible jet, which she turned invisible because apparently she has that power as well with her dead ex-boyfriend who is in the body of another man and somehow has no problem stealing and flying a much more modern plane than he ever flew back in, you know, 1918 or whatever it was, on their way to stop Pedro Pascal, who is a human genie in Cairo. Like, hear that sentence back and tell me I'm not crazy. (laughs) Like, someone told me that, you know, because I was criticizing the plot on Twitter, and they're like, well, if you want a realistic plot, you shouldn't be watching a comic book movie. Okay, fair point. But like most comic book movies actually make sense within the confines of the universe they're operating in. Like that sentence that I just said was ridiculous. <laughs> it makes no sense. So the climax of the film comes after Wonder Woman beats up a horribly CGI'd Kristen Wiig. Um, I didn't know this was a cat sequel, but apparently it is. And that makes more sense than a Wonder Woman sequel. But she uses the lasso of truth to wrap up Maxwell Lord, who is broadcasting to the entire world and getting their wishes granted so that he can become all powerful, basically. And then she's broadcasting the entire world and convinces the world, who has been busy for the last 10 to 30 minutes making wishes into this camera broadcast, she convinces the entire world to renounce their wish at the same time. And that's what saves the world. And she convinces Maxwell to also renounce his wish um, because she shows him flashbacks of the time that he like wet the bed when he was a kid and also shows him his own kid wandering the streets through all this chaos that's going on. 
it, yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty far out there. Um, and like, I love Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. I, I think when I think of Wonder Woman now, I think of her. I don't think she's a bad actor by any means. Pascal was actually really good in this movie. Christopher Pine, like trying to figure out 1980s stuff was great too. Um, and I love Kristen Wiig too, but this was just so unbelievably bad. And like the right, it was just like lazy and uninteresting. And all of the extras were just such bad actors and, and had a lot of speaking roles too. So it was just like, and it's two and a half hours long is a two and a half hour long movie. So I, I just, I couldn't do it. God bless all of those of you who like saw it and were not bothered by it. Um, like I just didn't, I couldn't get into it. And like the CGI wasn't that great either. Like Kristen Wiig as a cat looked really weird. Um, when Wonder Woman is running at top speed, it just looks like unnatural. And I guess that's kind of the point because if someone is running faster than a moving vehicle, they're probably going to look weird, but like it just wasn't a good movie. I couldn't do it. And I don't know why, because the first one, like I said, was such a really it was a really good movie it was one of dc's best and then they just totally regressed to the mean and you know i know movie theaters are closed but this would have been a straight to dvd release anyway like it should have been because <laughs> this is it, it just wasn't good hopefully i don't even know if i want another one now because they just ruined they, they ruined pedro pascal in my eyes like thank god for the mandalorian because and game of thrones and narcos Man, that guy's in some good stuff. Why was he in this? Why did he debase himself like this? I don't know. But I think that's going to wrap it up for episode two today. Um, if you guys have not already, please subscribe. Please follow the account on Twitter. Um, you know, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're working out Google Podcasts. I know that wasn't working for episode one. Hopefully that'll be up and running um, by either this week or next week. But thank you all for listening. Uh, please subscribe. Write me a review if you feel like. Just be gentle. I'm still learning how to speak into a mic for 30 minutes at a time by myself. But uh, appreciate you all listening. And we will catch you next week for episode three.